0: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles of the Royal Historical Society. I am a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Philip Zelikoff. Professor Zelikoff is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. He is a co-author of a good number of books uh, and has served in both the uh, American State Department and on the National Security Council staff. Most famously, he was the Executive Director of the 9-11 Commission. We speak today about his newest book, Suez Deconstructed, an interactive study in crisis, war, and peacemaking. Welcome, Professor Zelikov. Thank you. Uh, Professor, what was the genesis of this book?
1: Uh, This book uh, started as a project... um, while I was teaching at Harvard with uh, the late um, eminent historian, Ernest May, in which we were trying to explore ways of teaching people about how to assess other governments. And we hit on the Suez crisis as sort of a laboratory case to use in exploring all the different ways other governments assessed each other and then using that as a new kind of method in order to understand a major international event. So the the genesis of the project was twofold, really. The first was to create a, a different design for how to analyze a major international crisis and see the way in which different countries' assessments of each other interacted. And then the second was to then Um, harvest the way that changed our understanding of the crisis itself so it would change the our historical knowledge so the the core of the design was to was twofold first break the crisis down from six different national perspectives and then inhabit each of those national perspectives with um, writing case studies from those perspectives in which the inside that chapter you don't know any more than the country did at the time and then when you assemble you know all six of those at once each of them you know each of them inside those cases only knowing what the people knew at the time the effects turn out to be very interesting then the second half of the design was to cut the crisis up into three stages and repeat this process at each stage. Usually, uh, people tend to think of international episodes as kind of one single story, like a one-act play. But in reality, major crises are usually never really a one-act play. They're plays that unfold in two, three, four, and five acts. In this case, we divide it into a three-act play. And then in each act, you see the crisis through the eyes of each of these six countries in a sort of Rashomon-like way. And then you reset for the next act and do it again, because it turns out that different countries, um, each it's like an ensemble cast in which at different points in the story, every one of the six countries will play a crucial role.
0: Why look at the Suez Crisis as opposed to, say, the Indochina Crisis of 1954?
1: Uh, partly because it was a um, we could have it's it's a it's a big complex crisis. It uh, made clearly a, a major episode in uh, in post war history it had the advantage too of featuring both of the major superpowers, medium-sized powers in the case of Britain and France, but also relatively fragile local powers in the case of Israel and Egypt. So it was a, a diverse cast. Um, and and the Christ then operated at all these levels of kind of the overall Cold War, um, the, a regional battle, over the future of the Middle East, mainly between um, forces gravitating towards Cairo as the leader of the new Middle East versus forces gravitating towards Baghdad as the new leader of the Arab Middle East. And then the third level of the Arab-Israeli conflict itself. Um, There wasn't a crisis really that was um, so, so rich in offering a way to see um, the interplay of the countries in order to try out these methods. Um, You could, however, use these methods in other cases. We just thought this was an especially rich and challenging case in which to try them out. And we also thought that the application of the methods yielded some real insights about our understanding of the Suez crisis itself and the whole story.
0: Can you explain to the audience the meaning of what you refer to as uh, the Vickers Triangle?
1: Sure. One of the things we try to do at the in, in, in the very start of the book is to say something about uh, how it is um, countries assess each other. Because what we want the reader to do in reading the book is go through each of these assessments and themselves think, huh, what did they s- What do I think they got right? What do I think they got wrong? What do I think of how well this country was assessing the world around it? And then repeat that exercise again as they go through each of these country perspectives and thereby learn a lot. So to do that, we start by saying all countries, when they assess a situation, um, appreciate a situation as a compound of three kinds of judgments. And this is where the term Vickers Triangle comes from. Um, May and I had developed this way of theorizing about how countries or frankly anyone assesses a situation from some work that had been done by um, a wonderful English barrister and philosopher named Jeffrey Vickers in work that was published in the 1960s. And we say that any appreciation of a situation is a compound of three kinds of judgments, judgments about reality, what do, what's going on, judgments about value, what do I care about, and judgments about action, what can I do? What can I do about this? And that actually this is a seems very simple, but actually these three sorts of judgments constantly interact. So for example, you tend to pay much more attention to things you care about. Or you tend to care more about things if you think you can do something about them. And So if you, if you uh, basically just start by breaking down any assessment by noticing what are their reality judgments, what are their value judgments, what are their action judgments, and how are those interacting, that's a very relatively simple but very powerful way in which people can analyze the assessments of governance. Another virtue of that triangle is that it really forces you to pay attention to the significance of action judgments in uh, the way people assess situations. Usually, people gravitate more to the value judgments or the reality judgments, and they rarely think hard about the way in which constant assumptions about action are influencing the way they're sizing up the reality of a situation.
0: Can you describe the mental assumptions of what you refer to as, quote, the world of 1956, unquote?
1: Yes. Um, The book uh, tries to spend some time before we even get into all the details of the crisis, just kind of bringing the reader into uh, this different, strange world, which is the world of people in 1956. Because all these worlds of the past are, as one historian once put it, the past is a foreign country. And all these worlds are are really quite different from our own. So we take people into the world of 1956. So you can get used to the assumptions and concerns that people in 1956 understood um, throughout the world. And one of the first of those, for instance, is just to start by saying this is a post-war world. All these people have spent much of their adult lives in the shadow of giant wars. The wreckage of war and the scars of war are still all around them. This is even true for the Egyptians and Israelis in a variety of ways, including the shadow of the war they had just gone through between 1948 and 1949, um, over the establishment of the State of Israel. Um, so you then begin to set that scene. You set the scene of How did people think of the Cold War at that time? By the way, stressing the point that at that time, people did not think the Cold War was settled or stable. It felt more to them as if it was a sickening roller coaster of of frights and then momentary relaxation and then another fright again, as the world of thermonuclear weapons is just becoming to shadow their lives. And then bring them into, for instance, the world of the Arab Cold War, which most modern day readers uh, don't understand. Although actually another version of the Arab Cold War is unfolding before our eyes right now. In which. um, The big arguments in the Arab Middle East are between whether you're on the side of the Iraqis and their allies were on the side of the Egyptians and their allies. With Baghdad and Cairo were the two Poles. The Iraqis tending to side more with the British and establishment and status quo, and then the Egyptians tending to represent kind of the Arab revolutionary world, but also allied with uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which was profoundly alienated from the British. Uh, and then there's a third then there's the dimension of understanding the world of the Arab Israeli conflict as it existed in 1956 when actually Israel was still a very new and fragile country and Egypt was still a relatively new and fragile independent country having uh, just overthrown its monarch four years earlier having just negotiated an agreement to um expel the gigantic British base that had dominated Egyptian political life for generations. Um, So you're just putting people into that world before you launch them then into the details of this crisis that begins to unfold during 1955.
0: What was more of a game changer in terms of uh, regional politics in the near Middle East in uh, 1955 the um, formation of the Baghdad Pact or the Egyptian-Soviet arms um, agreement?
1: I think the, uh, the explosive event of 1955 is the uh, entry of the Soviet Union into the Middle East through the conclusion of the giant deal to sell arms to Egypt, um, which blew open the relatively stable military balance of the region. It also um, um, blew open the relative, the, the somewhat stable balance between the power of Cairo and Baghdad. Um, that is, the Baghdad Pact is important. Um, that it, and the back, but the back for for some of your listeners, what was the Baghdad Pact? The Baghdad Pact was um, nominally and an uh, a an lot. It was the British effort to restore. An alliance network of partner states in the Middle East, in a way taking the place of earlier relationships that they had at a time when um, Britain was still very powerful in the Middle East. And Britain and Europe relied on being able to get Middle Eastern oil that they could pay for with sterling, not dollars. The Bagh- but the Baghdad pact didn't fundamentally change the rivalry between Baghdad and Cairo. It was just another chess move in that rivalry as Iraq, partnering with the British, then developed relationships with Turkey and then with Pakistan and was trying to reach out into Jordan and into the Levant in order to extend its network of allies, backed with uh, partnered with Britain, rival uh, against Cairo and its network of partners. But what the Soviet entry into the the Middle East did is it blew open the precarious stability that uh, people had tried to keep from the West. As long as Egypt only got its arms from the West, um, the West, mainly Britain and France and the United States, had all agreed not to sell arms either to Egypt or to Israel, except uh, through common agreement. And so they had basically tried to withhold uh, modern arms from both Egypt and Israel, and both of those armies then had very modest armaments. The Soviets come in and say, "Well, the, the Egyptians then frustrated in their effort to build up their military, and also somewhat frustrated in their effort to get the kind of large economic aid that they wanted from the United States, um, decide that it's a clever move to just uh, buy all, or actually barter for all the arms they need from the Soviet Union and its allies." This is the deal was nominally set up through uh, Soviet ally. Soviet bloc stay Czechoslovakia. But of course, in fact, the deal was approved and monitored throughout by the Soviet government. And the Soviets received basically Egyptian cotton in exchange for supplying hundreds of modern tanks, modern jet aircraft, uh, which Israel really didn't have, um, and so on, this wealth of supplies that was going to flow in and make Egypt a major military power which would both show up Baghdad and frighten the Israelis. And then from that point on, everyone is calculating um, about uh, um, right away um, the possibilities of a future war that will in 1956. So long before people are reading about the Suez Canal, the major crisis is the general expectation, that Arab-Israeli war is about to resume on a much larger and more dangerous scale in 1956 because of the Soviet arms deal. And then it, it's interesting is that the Suez crisis does not begin as a Suez crisis at all. And all the concerns people have in 1955-56 until July of 56 have nothing to do with the Suez Canal per se.
0: Uh, How did Israel's leaders react initially to the uh, arms deal?
1: The basic Israeli, the initial Israeli reaction, we have these wonderful cases uh, on the view from Jerusalem in each one of these acts, um, building on uh, really some extremely good um, archival releases and historical work that's really only become available for Israel in relatively recent years. Um, In fact, the Israeli archives for this period were published about 10 years ago and have not been fully harvested yet in the historiography. Ben-Gurion's diary for the period is available as uh, some really excellent source material now for the Israeli side. And the initial Israeli reaction is a national emergency in the fall of 1955 and the winter of 55 56 national emergency um israel's existence is uh is existentially threatened um once this deal is completed uh the egyptian military will be much more powerful than the israeli military and there's a panic and uh, immediately they start considering plans for a preventive war against egypt before the uh, arms sales can be completed. They then decide in the winter of 55, 56, to hold off on the preventive war for the moment, anyway, as they frantically try to persuade the Americans to sell them compensating arms. The, they also tried with the British and were turned down flat. Um, they uh, and the, the Israeli-British relations were really quite toxic in, in this period. So the, the Israelis are reaching out to the Americans, and the Americans are pretty much stalling them because they're trying to squeeze the Israelis to make a peace deal with Egypt as the price of getting military support from the United States. And um, there's incredible tension inside the Israeli government about um, whether to launch war right away. No, that's not feasible. What could we do? Then they, uh, they settle down a little bit. They realize that The Egyptian military maybe is not going to be quite so fearsome as they thought, but they are still pretty much thinking we're probably going to have a war with Egypt sometime in 1956, and we need to somehow get ready for that. And then the big breakthrough for Israel is uh, is they do score uh, a military partnership, but it's not with the United States. It's with France, which itself is a remarkable story. Um, I think one for people who read this book, the case studies on Paris and perspective from Paris and the role of France in this crisis, I think is one of the the great uh, ill understood issues. I think France plays an absolutely central role in this story and in this crisis and has received only a tiny fraction of the attention that it deserves.
0: What was the initial British reaction to the arms deal?
1: The initial British reaction was concern, but then, uh, but not a huge amount of sympathy for the Israelis. Uh, British still um, were uh, angry about the way in which Israel had been created and the way the Palestine Mandate had ended and the uh, struggle they had had against the Zionists. And so the British are um, joining the Amer- uh, joining and part kind of manipulating the Americans in order to work the Israeli panic into pressure to create an Israeli-Egyptian peace deal. And the um, the American administration under Eisenhower, in fact, launches an extremely secret effort um, with. Uh, an envoy picked by Eisenhower personally, and with the whole negotiations set up by CIA channels in both Israel and Egypt, um, to try to work out an Israeli-Egyptian peace in the first uh, weeks of 1956, uh, with very much with British support, and also the British uh, endeavor to bribe the Egyptians back into the Western camp, rather than try to coerce the Egyptians uh, by helping to come up with an idea to work with the Americans who will provide most of the money for it and the World Bank to give Egypt its great national development dream, which is the dream of a gigantic dam system that will control the waters of the Nile and liberate Egyptian agriculture from uh, the traditional tyranny of the Nile's vagaries. This is the... The Aswan Dam project, which Egyptians see as kind of the key to their whole development future. And the British and Americans come up with the idea of offering to help sponsor that project as a way to wean the Egyptians away from the Soviets and back onto their side while they're also trying to negotiate this peace deal. Um, it's a it's a, a very it's a remarkable policy design and it the British become disillusioned with it and give up on it by about March of 1956.
0: What, what do you attribute um, the uh, fact that the British starting in September all the way to March, or even perhaps until July, 1956 seemed to blow hot and cold. Uh, at, initially in September, October, they're very surprised, upset, and uh, even have some degree of, um, Alarm about the arms deal, but they don't actually take any of the coercive measures that they could have taken. The chief one, of course, being that they could have halted the withdrawal of their troops from the Suez Canal base, which goes as scheduled and is wound up in June 1956. What do you attribute this uh, erratic behavior to?
1: The British are ambivalent about the Egyptians. Um, And indeed, the ambivalence is inside Anthony Eden himself, the prime minister. There's a side of them that wants to patch things up with the Egyptians and uh, manage the controversy, and a side that wants to destroy Nasser. And in the fall of 1955 and beginning of 1956, the British reconcile this ambivalence in a story that runs something like this, that they tell themselves and that you can see in the documents, which is... We're, let's make one big effort to try to win that, bring Nasser along, and make him a constructive partner. But if that doesn't work, then let's try to destroy him. And they work hard with through the Americans uh, at developing the uh, the Aswan Dam uh, carrot, but they give up on that carrot and they give up on the Egyptians uh, by early 1956, uh, possibly prematurely. And and very much in part, because of intel, intelligence reports that they get, um, and the influence of MI6 on the British calculations. The British have agents inside Cairo who are telling them that Nasser is uh, becoming a Soviet acolyte. He's uh, going to make Egypt a servant of the communist bloc. Um, Just telling the. Basically from someone inside Egypt who hates Nasser is feeding the British information that, um, inflamed their worst fears about Nasser and encourage Eden from this very secret information, uh, to want to go ahead and try to destroy him. So in fact, they, they blow hot, they, they blow hot and cold. Their warmth towards Nasser is greater than the American warmth for a while, but then their hatred for Nasser and their desire to overthrow him, the Americans also find exaggerated. Uh, they swing quicker than the Americans do on this point, though. The British always have a lot of influence over the views of the American secretary of state, John Foster Dulles. Uh, they don't have as much influence over the views of Dwight Eisenhower.
0: Uh, would it, to bring it forward a little bit, something which probably should go at the back end of the discussion. Would it be correct to say that of all the players uh, in this um, drama, uh, Soviets, Israelis, Egyptians, uh, French, Americans, British, that uh, Sir Anthony Eden would come out as probably the uh, worst performing of the lot? And what do you attribute that to? Some historians attribute that to um, uh, his uh, psychological, mental, physical health with... um, At this point, because of various um, uh, medical conditions, he was taking drugs uh, at a time when our medical knowledge of the side effects of such things was much more limited than uh, currently. Um, And Oddly enough, of course, is that Eden was, of all the players involved in this um, story, by far the most experienced. Um, He had personally negotiated the Anglo-Egyptian uh, treaty of 1936 which up to 1951 regulated Anglo-Egyptian relations he knew most of the key players um, in the case of someone like um uh the Iraqi regime um he knew them going back to the ni- late 1920s but again all that experience appears to have gone for naught in terms of his actual performance so what is in in your Inside, after writing this book, what do you attribute his uh, subpar performance to?
1: Actually, I think you lay out the uh, dilemma in evaluating Eden very well. Um, yes, he he has a high-strung personality, uh, and he's also sick. Um, and yes, um, his performance is degraded by both of these: one, the character trait, and the other is the medical condition. Yes. Um, but yes, you're also right that he's vastly experienced, um, has real sensitivity and knowledge about the Arab world. He actually um, spoke uh, Arabic with some uh, facility. He uh, had a real empathy towards that part of the world. Um, he's a, yes, uh, his performance in the crisis turns out to be uh Problematical. It's easy to jump on Eden and make him the great villain. I think someone reading our book will come away, though, with a certain empathy for Eden, especially in the earlier stages, as you kind of work through the dilemma of what what should Britain Britain have chosen to do instead. And then you see that once the um, Nasser nationalizes the canal, from the point of view of Eden and British domestic politics, he's mm-hmm. in a terrible position. Uh, The notion that he should have just, uh, that when Nasser announced the nationalization, it was not realistic politically for Eden to have shrugged his shoulders and said that was okay. He had to have some kind of vigorous response to that. And so partly one of the virtues of the book is it gets you into, well, once you understand that, where exactly does Eden go fatally wrong? Once you understand that simply... um, Acquiescing or welcoming Nasser's nationalization of the canal is uh, just out of the question for Eden in the circumstances of the end of july fifty six or early august fifty six How could he have steered this instead that might have allowed him to take a strong political position yet not um, embroil Britain quite so faithfully in a, in this disastrous venture, or even whether there was a way to salvage some sort of anti-nasser plan? Perhaps in a different form, uh, than, than the form in which the, the form the plan ultimately took and the form that made them so vulnerable to uh, crippling American pressure. So you, I think the reader will end up uh, being critical of some of Eden's choices, but also much more empathetic to understanding those choices. And, uh, one of the problems that Eden has is in a way is that he's too confident about his experience and too confident about his ability to run the foreign policy more or less himself. That he doesn't, with all his skill, in a way, it's partly because of his confidence in his skill. He's not doing the uh, the careful written staff work and policy analysis that actually has been so often a strength of the British government during these years and in the pre- and in the nineteen forties and to kind of work out an alternative solution and analyze alternative solutions. The British government has a powerful staffing apparatus and capability to do that sort of work, but Eden in his confidence and uh, in his physical condition actually shortchanges that kind of work and increasingly tries to just manage all this himself and basically is stalemated and doesn't know what to do to solve his problem. And then the French throw him a lifeline. The French have come up with a wonderful idea that Eden then grabs at, Um, but which never would have happened if the French hadn't developed the plan.
0: uh, What did Nasser want exactly circa late 1955, early 1956? In the book, you say this is not exactly an entirely clear matter for um, historians to ascertain as of yet.
1: Well, I think you've got it right. You have evidence for whichever theory of Nasser you like, in a way. Um, We have good access. The book actually has some unique access to Egyptian archives uh, from their foreign ministry, as well as some of the materials that have come out from Nasser's intimates. In some documents, Nasser himself composed. Um, The problem is that Nasser, in a way, wants it both ways and himself will not decide which to choose. Um, He wants both Western aid on a large scale, but he also wants to cultivate his image as the revolutionary leader of the Arab world and sympathizer to the Algerian rebels and leader of the confrontation against the Israelis. He wants to be both of these things. He wants to um, uh, bring down Baghdad and make himself the center of power in the Arab Middle East. But he also wants this large Western end. Uh, he, he, there's no point at which he makes a fundamental choice to choose one of these paths and not the other. He tries to pursue them both. And he ends up... Um, destroying his relationship with the West, which then give up on the canal deal. And then with characteristic style and uh, audacity, he responds to that by going after the canal. And he goes after the canal because that allows him to get a revenue source to do the Aswan Dam without the Western help. It's the only available large-scale revenue source he could have seized on. And actually one of the failures in foreign assessment on the Western side is when they worked through the decision on to give up the Aswan Dam deal, they didn't do the analysis of, okay, what will the Egyptians do if you do that? Where else might the Egyptians get this money? Do you think they'll give up on this deal? I think that Nasser's decision to go after the canal was foreseeable, but Western intelligence did not, in fact, try to foresee it.
0: Uh Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal Company in on July twenty six. Uh, could it not be said in retrospect, and actually this is something which uh, the book brought to my attention. I didn't quite get this particular idea until reading the book. Um, one of the reasons why the book should be read by um, uh, the scholarly community who is interested in this particular crisis um, is that um, perhaps if in um, July 27, 28, 29 first when Robert, the American Deputy Under Secretary of State Robert Murphy is sent to London and then eventually thereafter when John Foster Dulles, the American Secretary of State goes to London uh, to discuss the matters over with the British and the French if at that point the Americans had stated clearly that uh, the use of force to resolve the crisis uh, was something that they would oppose, that perhaps, as opposed to them, in essence, saying that the same thing in mid to late August, when uh, they did sort of, at that point, Eisenhower in particular, enunciate that uh idea, that um, uh, perhaps the British and the French would have um, gone a different route, have not um, um, commenced uh, the mobilization of forces uh which they did um, uh by the middle of august um, and that they would have not at that point been felt the need to in fact uh, resolve the crisis on their own terms or employ force
1: yes so uh, I think that's a good summary I think the um the easy answer is, is this. The Americans, basically, Dulles in particular, follows the British and French lead as to how to structure the diplomacy during the first week. During the first week, the Americans in Washington are actually unsettled and, and divided about how to respond to Nasser's movement. There's a whole cacophony of views, including some who favor the use of military force. Um, That's during the first week or so. The DOLUS on on how to structure the diplomacy basically goes along with the British and French design to turn this into an ultimatum that's going to have the use of force as the kicker when the ultimatum is refused. And then to set up the whole London conference to do the ultimatum. So during that first week, uh, understandably, the British and French kind of structure the whole thing their way. The opportunity to start turning this around actually, though, occurs during the London conference itself, because the Americans successfully recruit very good attendance at that conference, including from the Soviet government, the Indian government. And really, after that first week or so, um, Eisenhower begins to exert his influence. The American government settles down into a convinced view that, no, this is not going to should not result in the use of force against Egypt. I think that starts settling into place by the middle of August. And then as soon as you come to that conclusion, you begin realizing, okay, then what's the diplomatic strategy for the London Conference? If this is not a conference that we want to produce an ultimatum that will lead to the use of force, then you need some alternative strategy for the London Conference. Eisenhower actually realizes this. And reaches out to Dulles and tries to persuade Dulles to adopt a different diplomatic approach at the London conference. Eisenhower, I don't think fully realizes it, but the strategy he's advocating to Dulles is in fact the same approach that's being advocated by the Soviets and by the Indians as their way of also diffusing the crisis and giving the British a face saving way out by creating an international advisory presence with respect to the canal rather than a controlling international authority to take the canal from the Egyptians. Um, that opportunity is lost. Um, Dulles is too caught in the design he'd gone along with weeks earlier and um, rejects I- Eisenhower's advice. And Eisenhower, who feels remote uh, from the diplomacy, decides not to override Dulles and force him to do what he wants. And Dulles also turns down the chance to himself go negotiate this issue with Nasser, Um, which actually Harold Macmillan wanted Dulles to do, is you go out to Cairo and and talk this through with Nasser. Dulles doesn't do that. Instead, they send a delegation headed by the Australian. And the result, then, is they can be no more than messenger boys with no flexibility to negotiate the ultimatum. and, And so they find themselves stuck now in a diplomatic position, ultimatum expecting the use of force, but that's now a strategy that the United States has already decided it does not support at the time that that strategy is being executed. And as soon as Dulles comes home, um, he's very quickly engaged in trying to come up with a new strategy, another diplomatic approach to take the place of the now abortive strategy that's being executed from the first London conference.
0: Was not the other chief burial besides, in in terms of the crisis itself, besides this American ambiguity um, from July 26 to, say, the middle, a lot of part of August, the fact that militarily speaking, the French and the British could not execute a coup de main. Um, They could not immediately um, employ force to... um, uh, take the canal zone uh, from the Egyptians and that they needed four to six weeks of military preparations in order to be able to do so.
1: Yes, um, that's a crucial factor. The, um, the lack of readiness, the lack of contingency plans for something like this, which then uh, forces a prolongation of the crisis until the British and French militaries can be made ready. Um, is a real source of delay, and then that pretty well forced a military plan um, that would have required action in September. I think what's more fateful though, is even after they organize that plan, is then um, they don't go they don't go forward with that plan. They scrap the plan again and come up with another plan responding to the American pressure to try the diplomacy in a different way. And the Americans are now trying to stall and avoid any use of force at all. Now, and, in
0: essence, uh, the um, time period when force would have been acceptable to the Americans because they were, not, um, they were still ambiguous um, in early August uh, was the time period when the British and the French could not actually use force and that they win. They could use correct. force. Uh, The Americans Americans had already made
1: up their mind that they were opposed to it. You are correct. And so by that time, the Americans are already pushing an alternative diplomatic strategy that's trying to avoid the use of force. The British then have the choice of either going along with that American stall. And what they do is temporize. They go along with the American stall while still trying, while still um, hoping to use force. And then that just makes their situation even worse. As time passes, uh, political support for the use of force actually begins to evaporate in Britain itself. That support had been there hmm, for the first weeks. And then by the end of August, early September, it's already dissipating. And now Eden really is caught out. He's got a strategy that is losing support even in his own government, in his own country and in the commons the Americans are no longer with him he's uh he's in a jam but instead of adjusting his strategy now uh, one way or the other um he continues to kind of try to make it all work out and is stalemated and as basically the Americans correctly believe that they have they have solved the crisis and won the game um by the uh End of September, beginning of October, because they've now got a UN approach going. They've got a diplomatic resolution that boxes in the British. It looks like they've stopped any use of force. They basically outmaneuvered the British and French and have got this crisis wound up. And uh, the Americans think and the Egyptians think this is this is now one and over. Except the French and Israelis have now come up with a a brilliant new plan that they then uh, sell to the exasperated and desperate Anthony Eden.
0: You seem to give, to go back a little bit, you seem to give uh, Dulles a pass on his, um, in retrospect, infamous news conference on the 2nd of October. Why is that?
1: Oh, well, I, I, uh, his his news conference was offensive to the, for your uh, listeners, this is a news conference in which he's kind of patronizing and insulting to the British concerns. And he's actually pretty overt about the fact that we're really not going to uh, come up with a resolution to this that has much teeth. Um, It's, uh, and that we, it's, it's it's, substantively, it was a news conference that did take the position that Eisenhower wanted him to take is we're not going to support the use of it was just that it, the, the style of the news conference had a certain brazen arrogance about it and uh, a, ru- a brusqueness in the way he treated the British concerns. That was really quite embarrassing uh, to Eden and infuriating to them. And it just kind of um, redoubled Eden's sense of frustration and anger. And But he had no way out. There was nothing he could do about that. Until the French threw him this lifeline, which he then uh, grabbed with all his might
0: uh, how was the uh, Soviet reactions to the crisis um, influenced by the emerging their own emerging crises in Poland and then subsequently in Hungary
1: yes the the soviet reaction here is and we have a the cases the case we have on Moscow uh benefits again from some excellent inside material, uh some of which has been produced by the superb work on Khrushchev's foreign policy done by Tim Naptali and Alexander Persenko, um using uh Soviet archives. Uh the Soviets basically try to uh bluster and show solidarity, but they uh, at first they don't want a war, they don't want to uh, aggravate, they don't want to encourage the Egyptians to go to war, they just want a a bold public position, and they are, as you point out, deeply distracted by the crises they're having inside the communist bloc that will ultimately lead to uh, a really quite substantial little war with Hungary. In October, November 1956, and almost led to a military intervention that year in Poland as well, uh, but did not. So they're very just dis- preoccupied with that, but not so preoccupied that they're not taking the strident public position, paying a lot of attention to it, and, and trying to publicly be as confrontational as they can be while privately, um, trying to encourage the Egyptians to behave themselves and not make things worse. But then, um, after the intervention materializes, um, there is this really quite remarkable and audacious moves by Khrushchev to start um, almost in the sense of, I'm so busy and preoccupied with Hungary that um, it's like he's under such stress that his reaction to the stress is not to be calm his reaction to distress is to behave wildly. And so once the uh, military intervention begins against Egypt, even though he's uh, just wrapping up the Hungarian uh, fighting in which tens of thousands of people are being killed, he makes these remarkable uh, uh, brazen threats to the British, the French and the Israelis, in a, uh, brutally threatening them with the possibility of nuclear attack that then thoroughly alarms the United States and energizes the American efforts to kind of wrap this up. Um, the question then is, did Khrushchev really mean these threats? Was, were the Soviets genuinely preparing intervention or was this bluff? The best evidence, which we present in the book appears to be that this is all, this is mostly bluff and bluster. But um, the Americans took the danger more seriously than that. And perhaps in time, it might have become more serious. But what, for whatever reason, the Amer- it does energize the Americans to move very quickly to bring the crisis to a rapid conclusion. In a way, brutally pressuring the British above all, but also the French and the Israelis. But they're pressuring the British in part in order to rescue the British from this Cold War crisis. Um, I and mean, I think the Eisenhower thought of it in a way as a kind of tough love, is we have to force the British to wrap this thing up so that we don't find ourselves uh, with a danger of war going to war on behalf of the British against the Soviets.
0: What changed Israeli Premier David Ben-Gurion's mind in agreeing to the French uh, plan um, after initially rejecting it uh, on various occasions, <laughs> um,
1: it's, it's a wonderful observation. Um, you, you 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 did quite rightly note that uh, Ben Gurion was quite unenthusiastic about the idea of going on. He kept he keeps referring to this, even though it's a French plan. He keeps referring to it as, as a British plan, Is he he's, just, he's so anti-British. He sees this as some sort of British scheme to somehow entrap the Israelis in, in a mess, um, but number one, what gets them to go along is the is the significance of the relationship with the French. Um, the partnership with France has given Israel a real pa- a partner among the powers they are deeply grateful to the French and the role the French are already playing in building up the Israeli military as the, as the shipments that had secretly begun during the summer of 1956, uh, coming out of extremely intimate and secret deals that are done um, in France uh, with uh, all kinds of cover. And Ben-Gurion uh, above all feels that he owes it to the French to help to to play this accommodating role in the plan they developed as in order to sustain this partner, this vital partnership, defense partnership with France, which ultimately, by the way, will become a partnership in the development of atomic research and nuclear weapons, by the way, for in both countries, France industry. So it's a very important partner. Um And second, uh, it does give them a way of trying to uh, deal with Egypt and, and resolve uh, the border security issues in some decisive way. These border security issues that have been gnawing at the vitals of the Israeli state ever since its birth and have made the Israeli state living in a chronic state of insecurity uh, uh, in the seven years of its life. So those two factors uh, above all, Um, But it was a it was a close call, as you point out, for Ben-Gurion. And there was a a vehement argument about it in his cabinet, his cabinet, uh, which we have now excellent records about the discussions of this in the Israeli cabinet. And they were all quite worried about the American reaction. They foresaw some of the dangers there. They kind of accepted the wishful thinking reassurances that the Americans could be brought along, but their assessments of the Americans are often perceptive. By the way, Abba Iben, from who was in Washington at the time, was especially acute and perceptive in his appraisal of the Americans. And uh, But his advice uh, was discounted, and they decided to go along with the French plan. But this is another way of underscoring the French are the essential midwife in this whole episode. Uh, there's no way the Israelis work this out with the British. Their relations with the British are terrible. In other words, the French are the indispensable partner to the British. The French are the indispensable partner to the Israelis. Without the French, this coalition does not happen. And the French uh, provide the guiding energy. Um, really, uh, one may not like the French plan, but you have to admire the skill and energy with which it was put together. Um, that's in a way they are the indif- they are the indispensable player in the creation of what we know as the Suez Crisis.
0: And uh, that's something that the Americans missed uh, yes, prior yes. to. Americans,
1: you're absolutely right, the Americans, uh, and by the way, like most historians today. <laughs> they focus overwhelmingly on the british and don't pay nearly enough attention to the french and the french role however is the secret to the crisis and even in 1956 the americans were not paying enough attention to the french and to the french role um they are un- I comment that in 1956 uh, it was characteristic for people to overestimate the british and british power and underestimate the french and french power
0: In retrospect, isn't there some irony in the fact that the person who was most irate and strongly opposed to the Anglo-French attack on Egypt uh, subsequent to the Israeli um, uh, move into Sinai was Eisenhower. And he, because uh, Eisenhower was assumed by by particularly the British to be the person most likely to go along with it,
1: Now, it is ironic, but the British should, should of course, not have been surprised at all since Eisenhower had made his views on this extremely clear in repeated letters and exchanges with Anthony Eden, uh, even in the beginning of September, 1956. Um, Really, Eisenhower's position was, was perfectly clear by then. And so then the British have to make a fundamental decision as to whether uh, Eisenhower will end up just acquiescing in something they know he will detest, and uh, their judgments as to why they think he will acquiesce are quite superficial um, that oh he'll be preoccupied with the election um, oh, he'll be uh, too uh, buffaloed by the Israeli lobby. Um, these were not uh, um, very thoughtful assessments of Dwight Eisenhower.
0: And in fact, isn't this another example of um, uh, the failures of British decision-making, or particularly Eden's, because there was, of course, a famous dispatch by the British ambassador in um, Washington, Sir Roger Macon's, pointing out that uh, Eisenhower in particular, but the Americans in general, we're opposed to the employment of force as a means of uh, bringing Nasser down or reducing his influence. And then I think, go as right. you put, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, that, uh, as Macon's point out, that uh, we have one way of resolving this matter. The Americans have another. But isn't it better that uh, we go along with them because we can use their huge amount of power to our ultimate benefit.
1: Well, you're quite right, but Roger Makins doesn't know anything about the French plan. And um, Makins, actually with practically the entire foreign office, with maybe one exception, um, is uh, pretty much in favor of accepting the United Nations uh, face-saving resolution of the Suez crisis that the UN comes up with at the beginning of October. And Macon thinks that's the, uh, that Britain should go. Macon's, and in fact, I think Selwyn Lloyd, the foreign secretary at that point, were ready to grudgingly go along with that resolution had the French not come in with this lifeline for Eden, about which makins knows nothing. But Yes, you're right that the British, there's no reason for the British to make this bad assessment of Eisenhower. It's worth uh, not entirely putting everything on poor Eden. Uh, Eden is very poorly served in this period by British intelligence. British intelligence has is the source of these extremely inflammatory uh, secret reports about Nasser and Egypt that inflame Eden's views. British intelligence is coming up with half-baked schemes to overthrow Nasser and overthrow the government in Syria, all of which goes goes bad. Um, british intelligence is not providing very helpful assessments of what's going on with the french and the israelis or the americans so the foreign offices analysis of what's going on is uh generally pretty good eden does disregard that but he's also not being especially well served by uh by the intelligence side either but uh, you're right that it. Really, once the, he's isolated and boxed in, um, the French throw the lifeline. And really, once the French throw the lifeline, there are only a few people in, in the whole British government who even know about that or even fully understand the plan. And at that point, pretty much the whole analytical machinery of the British government has been cut out of the policy process from about October 14th onwards.
0: Uh, what would you attribute which particular variable uh, which caused uh, uh, Eden to cease the employment of force on November 6? Was it the um, crisis or the alleged crisis in retrospect was found not to be a crisis on Pound Sterling? Uh, was it the um, uh, undertakings at the United Nations? Was it the clear American opposition? What would you attribute the sort of key variable which caused Eden to, um, even though probably within 48 hours, the British and French forces would have been, controlled the entire Suez uh, Canal area to say stop?
1: I think, um, I think if you had asked Eden himself this question and he gave you an honest answer, he would have probably told you it was the, the accumulation of all the problems. Um, the hysterical domestic atmosphere, the American, the the American and UN political pressure, um, the uh, um, the so the the rising tension with the Soviet threats, plus the oil and currency issues, the oil and sterling issues. If you, but I actually think in some ways the number one uh, uh, in that list. Probably number one would be oil and number two would be um, the strength of Eisenhower's uh, personal position and prestige. And uh, I mean, he had since the opposition in Britain is entirely against him and people are pouring into the streets. And then he doesn't even have the Americans either. So um, kind of what's his base? And then we're not are now about to, they're now rationing oil on top of everything else, um, and the situation is especially dire because the Americans are, are squeezing them very quietly, by the way, not ostentatiously, but quietly and powerfully on the oil. Yes, there are the concerns about Sterling, and uh, as Macmillan is also beginning to panic and change his views, Macmillan, who had previously in the crisis been one of the most ardent hawks, and that's a fact. You know, that's part of the domestic factor. But I, I think the... Uh, I, at the top of the list of five or six things that cumulatively break even. And uh, I think Eisenha- Eisenhower and oil are at the top of the list.
0: You seem to evaluate Eisenhower's performance in the crisis very highly, which, um, given the fact that he uh, did not have much by way of detailed knowledge of the area, what do you attribute his, how do you attribute his ability to perform so well?
1: Um, Eisenhower, it, I attribute it to uh, Eisenhower's training and ability, actually, to do analytical policy anal- policy work and analytical assessments of the situation. It's, uh, one should never forget that Eisenhower came to his position of stature in the U.S. Army on his strengths as an analyst and policy staffer, not as a commander of men in battle. He had been the best staffer in the U.S. Army in 1942, impressing the other best staffer in the U.S. Army, which was George Marshall, the chief of staff. Um, these were very analytical people. They believed in written staff work, and in calm, careful analysis of what are your objectives, what's the situation, what can be done, by what time, with what means, and doing that calmly, even under duress. And Eisenhower had deep experience at this point in performing cool, calculated analysis under duress. So what's striking during the crisis? is uh, and you can see this in the documents and in his diaries is even in the midst of everything that's going on is you see him kind of mapping out the assessments of the situation, the weighing of foreign reactions, the calculations of what military action might or might not accomplish. And he's always keeping his eye on the main ball. See, to him, the main ball and a thing that's often lost in the analysis of the crisis is the fundamental issue here is Arab-Israeli war with the possibility that the Soviets will come in on the Egyptian side and that we'll be obliged to help defend the Israelis. And indeed, during the summer, Eisenhower has put in motion really very secret plans to come to Israel's defense in the possibility of an Egyptian, a Soviet-armed Egyptian attack on Israel. So he's constantly looking at the Israeli-Egyptian conflict as the core here and trying to work on settling that or else providing a defense solution to that. So one of the brilliant things he does during this crisis is he sees that the way the crisis should be resolved has to include something that solves the Israeli border security issue. Very few other people are, see, are, are, are keeping that object in mind during this crisis. But Eisenhower does, and his efforts, along with uh, Lester Pearson in Canada, and Doug Hammarskjöld and his staff in New York, really create one of the most brilliant and creative policy solutions in the whole story, which is the creation of the UN emergency force and the mission of that force, where they take thousands of international troops, mainly Canadian and Indian, and put them in a substantial belt in the thousands along Israel's borders to demilitarize that and effectively eliminate the Israeli border security issue. So a crisis that seemed superficially to be about the canal actually was resolved in a way that solved the Israeli border security problem and brought peace to the Arab-Israeli situation for 10 years. And what turned out to be an absolutely invaluable window for Israel's national development. And actually would have kept peace for longer than that. If the Egyptians hadn't insisted on the expulsion of the UN force, which precipitated the Six Day War of 1967.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: I'd like them to understand the intricate interaction of foreign assessments and policy work that lie underneath the surface of any major international crisis. I'd like them then to be able to cut beneath the superficial narratives of these crises in order to see the interactive processes that actually drive these crises and produce them. In other words, to make that even simpler, I'd like them to value the assessment of a crisis through a historian's microscope. Turning up the power of analysis and looking into the small details that actually drive these things in the same way that we've learned that you need a microscope sometimes to understand the course of a great disease, rather than just looking at gross anatomy. Using the historian's microscope, in the Suez case, breaking down the interactions of the key players actually yields very powerful insights, not only about the Suez case, but about how to understand any international crisis.
0: I would like to thank you very much, Professor Zelikoff, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
1: You're most welcome. Thank you.